Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got Santa Mohan, who is the executive in residence of the Integrated Innovation Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, which is based in Silicon Valley. At the Integrated Innovation Institute, she co-delivers courses, contribute to curriculum design, and mentor students in their projects and project deliveries. Prior to this, Santa is also a co-founder and chief development officer at Retail Solution Incorporate. RSI is the world's leading technology company enabling consumer packaged goods, manufacturer and retailer to optimize their market position and drive greater profitability from supply chain to shelf. Shanta shared with me what led her and her other co-founder to start their analytical solution company called Retail Solution. Some of the problems that they were solving and some of the challenges that they were facing, but how quickly they were able to adapt and pivot into building analytic solution that proved to be valuable for the manufacturer and the retailer in the retail world. We talk about her successful exit from this company she co-founded and what led her to her latest venture at CMU. We went on to the detail in discussion where she shared with me a lot of important practice and tips in terms of the product development and product management, as well as the data governance. Specifically, how all of these being applied in developing an analytic solution to solve the problem for the customer. If you are a senior manager or C-level, this is one episode you do not want to miss. How to combine and incorporate data governance, product development, and management to build an end-to-end analytic solution at your organization from a founder perspective. Someone who has done it from end-to-end and someone who has done it successfully. If you have any question for me or Shanta, please feel free to connect us on LinkedIn or send us a voice message at Anchor Podcast Platform. If you enjoy and want to listen more episode like this, where the world-class business leader running a high-performing modern organization using analytic solution, make sure you subscribe to the Analytic Show podcast at your favorite podcast platform. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Shanta. Welcome to the Analytic Show podcast. Super duper excited to have you here today. And I'm so much excited to talk about what you have got to share with us today. How are you today? Pretty good, Jason. And thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be on your show. You know, I see you've done so many podcasts with so many different beta leaders. And so I am super thrilled to be here. I can assure you that the privilege is mine. 
Now, I want to start a little bit light and talk a bit about some of the things that you are doing. So after leading multiple high-value teams in multiple tech vertical, now you have transitioned into teaching. So I'm curious to know, what do you enjoy most about teaching? Well, at the Innovation Lab of Carnegie Mellon's Integrated Innovation Institute, I guide and mentor the students in their uh, class projects and practicums that are part of the innovation and entrepreneurship courses. The thing I love the most is, of course, the interaction with the students. They are some of the brightest you can find anywhere. And because the courses are part of the master's program in software management, technology venture, and electrical and computer engineering, the students have a mixed educational background. They come from all over the world. And it's the diversity of the students that makes it very interesting to work with them. Some of the students want to be product managers. Some want to start their own company and others just want to program. And they bring uh, different skills, different aspirations. And we work on real world problems. And that is the key aspect of the learning. And I'm thrilled I am a key uh, person delivering that experience of practical projects to the students. Fascinating. Now, before I we go on and talk about these Innovation Institute, I am curious to know what similarities do you find in teaching and leading teams? Well, they are similar and different at the same time. If you look at scope, for example, in uh, retail solutions, the company I co-founded, we were focused on using big data to solve problems in retail, using software as service. And we were pioneers in what we did with analytics. And my teams, I had multiple teams, and it had product leaders, software engineers, QA engineers, and data scientists, all spread across four different locations. I was doing remote management of multiple teams long before this pandemic came along and we all started to work remotely. In my current role of guiding and mentoring students, the scope is much narrower. These are all students, though diverse, they work on the problems that are more constrained in scope. As an engineering leader, I spent a lot of time coaching my teams. At the company, I had the opportunity to mentor many individuals at different levels, engineers, managers, directors, and many of them became leaders in their own right. And that mentoring aspect is similar with students. I mentor and guide them in their projects and help them deliver results that are useful to the stakeholders. At my work before, the length of time I engaged with my teams was quite long sometimes spanning many years because people don't jump from job to job that quickly, maybe in two years, maybe in four years. With teaching, you have the set of students for a short time, just a semester. And the kind of projects we do are typically less than three months long. And the scope of coaching is restricted in the sense that only what can be done within that time. However, some of the challenges in working with teams exist in, in both scenarios. One is not better than the other. With leading work teams, I was pretty much 24 by 7 because my teams were around the world. I had teams in uh, the U.S. and in Shanghai and in India. And then 
with the role I have with CMU, I'm only doing it part-time and the students' time for the class projects and practicum is limited. And the intensity is very different. You could say my previous work as a founder and chief development officer was like a marathon, while the CMU role is more like a sprint in chart bus. I think that my current rule, I mean, current role suits me for where my life is, giving me the opportunity to do many different things besides the teaching. I love it. I love how that you tell the difference between the two. Now, if that's okay for you, do you mind to tell us a little bit about the retail solution? I know from my research, it's a really successful analytical provider in the retail sector, but you have sold it, uh, you have exceeded. Tell us a little bit of the backstory about this company that you founded and what led you to decide in selling such a successful analytic company? Well, my co-founders and I, we were four of us. We got together in 2003 and we actually founded the company to do something about RFID. During that time, RFID was all the hype and uh, we were thinking, let's look at what we can do with the data that RFID will uh, generate. And so we started to do analytics on RFID data. At that time, Walmart had mandated that all the suppliers will tag their products. And so we can track them all the way from the beginning of their manufacturing to where it goes out of the store in the hands of a customer. And uh, in this process, what we identified was that the RFID data was really not so reliable. See, the reads were not reliable enough for us to do anything with them besides saying that, yes, you saw the product here, you saw the product there, but it was not 100% available. And then Walmart pulled the mandate and said, you don't have to do it anymore. And of course, when Walmart says you don't need to do it anymore, the suppliers gladly stopped. And so we had to quickly think, what can we do? And at that time, we have been generating algorithms for identifying out of stock. Out of stock is one of the major problems, right, in retail. And so we decided we can do the algorithms even without the help of RFID data. We can use the point of sale and inventory and other legacy type data in order to provide all that we wanted to provide. So we quickly pivoted and we bought a company who was already in the process of getting retail data and serving up analytics to the CPG companies and uh, really uh, pushed it and became the leader in, in our niche. And I stayed there until the end of 2016. And we recently got acquired by IRI. And so that's the story behind Retail Solutions. Was it an emotional exit? It was such a baby of you and the other three co-founder. I feel like it must be reasonably emotional to, to part way with this company that you founded. Yes. And, uh, you know, the babies have to grow up sometime, right? <laughs> and then they leave your house anyway. So that was, uh, yeah, definitely emotional. And But we were, you know, aware that one of these days we had to have an exit. So that happened. Yeah. That is so true. I'm so mindful of my young children will have to even 
actually leave the house and uh, stay at its own. I think what we can do is just uh, help them to stay in- independent and make good judgments, just like a company. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Share with us about the institute, the Integrated Innovation Institute, where you are currently doing the works over there at the uh, Carnegie Mellon University, CMU? Yeah. So the Integrated Innovation Institute, it unites the disciplines of design, business, and engineering so that the students can learn to build solutions with real value and foster innovation. It started with a strong foundation that CMU had in the 1940s, where there was an emphasis on incorporating humanities and social sciences into professional courses. And then in the 80s, the design, manufacturing, and marketing of new products, Capstone, was launched. It was called Integrated Product Development. This Capstone is probably the first course in the world to be taught by an integrated team of faculty members across engineering, business, and design. And uh, Ford got involved in this capstone around 2000, and they sponsored work. So the students got to work with Ford. And this was the foundation for anything that uh, went forward working with the industry. And then we've had several master's programs in software management, technology ventures, and so forth. And then in 2002, we opened the California campus because, you know, CMU is headquartered in Pittsburgh. And we wanted to be close to the Silicon Valley. So that happened. And then in 2013 is when this uh, Integrated Innovation Institute was formalized or founded. You know, then the founders were all from three of the university's leading schools, you know, Tepper School of Business and College of Engineering and School of Design. And then the innovation lab that I am in was started with a partnership of Emirates Airlines. And uh, it's uh, serving as an incubator of innovation. And it's overseen by uh, the lab director, Stuart Evans. He's a distinguished service professor. And I work with Stuart in this institute. Right. I love that the philosophy that the Institute has got is about the combination of the design development and the product management. Tell us about what led to have the Institute having this philosophy of combining these three. And the reason why I'm asking that is because often you would see that many institutes or many teaching would have each of these stand alone. Each of them stand alone would have its own value, but combining three of them certainly really bring the best out of uh, any product could have and the impact it could have. Yep, yep. I think it goes back to some of the great thinking minds in the university, you know, people like Herbert Simon, the Nobel laureate, and many others who saw that in order to be good at solving problems, you have to start from the design. And and so the school of design and the engineering, and then of course, marketing, you know, these all came together uh, in order to say, it's not enough for engineers to be just solving problems. You need to solve problems in a way that can be provided as solutions to the public. So that's kind of how it all came about. So what brought you to join the Institute? What makes you decide 
this is the place that you want to spend for the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, I retired from the company I co-founded, Retail Solutions, at the end of 2016. And I wanted to work on a few things I was passionate about. One of them was to write a book on pioneering Indian engineering women. I come from one of the oldest engineering schools. In fact, the oldest engineering school in India called College of Engineering Gindi. And the first women to graduate in India were from my alma mater. So I wanted to write a book on those women who graduated back in the 1940s and 50s. And then I also wanted to give back to the educational institutes that gave me the foundation for what I had accomplished. I had graduated from the CMU Stepper School. And so I wanted to be connected to the university and do something with it. And then I wanted to spend time with my grandchildren. I have three of them and uh, I just grab any opportunity I have to spend time with them. And then when I retired, a friend introduced me to Professor Stuart Evans, who's the director of the Innovation Lab. And we uh, had good chemistry. We liked working with each other. And so I started working with him in the fall of 2017. And we worked together well because I bring a lot of the technical and oversight expertise that are needed in the projects that we do as uh, part of the courses. And uh, my role is one of guiding the students and research assistants to work on solving practical problems in the enterprise. Love it. Now, speaking of women in technology and engineering, well, before that, is one of the topics that I am uh, always interested and I'm passionate about is about also introduce really making the company more diversity and having more female founder, female business leader. In your experience and the book that you're writing, share with us how can we encourage more female to join the engineering and to join the technology so that it's not just one side or the male like me sitting at the front. Yeah, very, very good question, Jason. You know, what I have seen is in India, the representation of women in engineering schools is pretty high. It used to be very few women were in engineering up until about the 1980s or so. But after that, now, if we look at the participation of women in graduating from engineering school, it's almost 40-50%. But what happens is after they graduate and they start working, many of them give up working when they get married, when they have children. This is India. I'm not talking about the U.S., but in India, this is the case that you know every critical event in a woman's life it just makes them leave the workforce. And when they leave the workforce, it's very hard to come back, especially for engineering. Things are moving at a very fast pace. And by the time you want to come back, technology has changed so much. So without some kind of training, retraining or uh, studies, it's hard to get back in. And that is the reason why you don't see too many women continue in the engineering world. And then you find very few technology leaders and very few women uh, actually doing entrepreneurship, for example. In the US, it's slightly different, but 
here, I think they experience a lot of paid discrimination and so forth. So they say, why bother? I can easily go and make money in another field. So those are some of the reasons. So basically, the companies need to be open to retraining and re-entry of uh, women after they have their kids grow up and leave the I mean, leave, go for, go to school or things like that. And they should be willing to give them flexible hours. They should be willing to give them perks, like having a childcare on site, things like that. I certainly hope that part of the positive things that the pandemic has brought to us is about the work flexibility. And hopefully this work flexibility would equally translate it to the work flexibility that you just mentioned, and hopefully that would in turn allow more women engineers in the technology, in the engineering field. So thank you so much for that. So I, I really think that is one of the positivity that I hope that pandemic can bring for us. Now coming back to the Institute, share with us some of the project in the data science that you and the Institute are working on. Sure. So in the past uh, three years or so, we have had the students work on several data science projects. One project was to do with creating a data lake. I think anybody who's working with data knows what a data lake is. It's about bringing together data from all the different operational sources and providing it to the consumers of the data. And so the teams worked on conceptualizing and designing a data lake using the best of breed components for the purpose of servicing customers and increasing revenues. Another project was to design an automated system to predict sales for a company versus the whole industry. And this had uh, AI machine learning in it. And uh, they also implemented visualization of data through interactive dashboards and so that the salespeople can access information across multiple dimensions. And they also implemented a conversational query capability. And so this was one of the projects. And then another project was to evaluate tools that are available in the market for using for uh, quality purposes. So as you know, quality of the data can be defined across uh, six dimensions, accuracy, completeness, um, consistency, timeliness, validity, and uniqueness. Now, the students worked identifying what kind of tools are available to provide data quality. And uh, that was another data science project. And this semester, we have the students working on data governance. That's a major problem for most enterprises, especially with all the you know, avalanche of data that we have. Most organizations start projects to get value from the data they collect all over the enterprise. And then they create data lakes, data warehouse, but the quality of data and how the data is being used, they're all afterthoughts. One day, suddenly they realize, oh no, the data is not good and we have to do something about managing on regulating the data. So what the students are have done this semester is uh, the data governance, looking at it from the technology perspective. Because you know, data governance is about people, process, and 
technology. And this particular project is just focusing on the technology. How can we use what kind of capabilities are out there to help an enterprise have data governance? I think data governance is really the, what I call the foundation of the data, enterprise data and the analytics. Because if the foundation is not strong enough, everything you on top is just going to collapse. I'm curious to know what are the tools that are available that business or in your view that you want to share that the businesses that can use to leverage the data governance at their organization. Sure, sure. So when you talk about data governance, there are that, that's an umbrella term. Data governance includes so many different things. But in particular, there are a few tools that we've been looking at. And they are one data catalog. It's a collection of metadata that when you combine it with data management and search tools, enables analysts and other data users to quickly locate the data they need, and it provides information for evaluating the fitness of the data for whatever you want to use it for. And then there is data discovery. It's a concept that refers to the process of getting the data from a variety of sources and identifying the trends and outliers, seeing how the data looks in terms of being useful for advanced analytics. It has uh, several aspect like data preparation, visual analysis, etc. And then there is data observability. It refers to the organization's ability to identify the health. And it can be broken down into five pillars. Freshness of the data, you know, how fresh it is, how is it distributed, what's the volume of the data, how does the schema look, and so forth. And all these components provide useful information about the accuracy and durability. And then there is data lineage. And data lineage is about the origin of the data, what happened to it. Because in, when you look at what happens to data in an enterprise, it starts out in uh, one of the operational systems, and then it gets transformed and moves through, gets into a data lake, and then Somebody says, I want a data mod from that data. They put a BI tool on top of it. So being able to say, how did I get this piece of data in my chart is a very useful thing to have because sometimes when you see some anomalies, you want to know where did this come from? And then, of course, the last one and the most important one is the data security. And you've heard uh, recently so many stories about data breaches. Just the other day, I was reading something about a Finnish firm, a firm in Finland. They had a data breach, and uh, it, this was a firm that was providing psychotherapy. And all the patient's information were leaked, and uh, they were asked to pay ransom in order to not uh, have it be available out there in the world. And so it's like this, there are so many others, credit card data and so on and so forth. So data security is for safeguarding the information, the digital information for the entire life cycle because the data is addressed, data is uh, traveling between systems. And if you want to think about it in terms of where it is stored and how it's accessed, all of these things come into play. 
And now, of course, we have hybrid environment on-premise and on the cloud and so forth. So these are all things that uh, would come under data governance from a technology perspective. The data governance, no doubt, is super important. And what I found is that often one of the challenges that any other organization is facing is they are trying to make the role between the data engineer and the analytic modeler to be so distinctive in a way that the data engineer would do everything about the data, including the data governance, the data business, et cetera, and getting the data quality up to be ready, while the analytics tend to see themselves in just using the data. However, I have a slightly different view, though, that I still think that the analytic people and the team should be equally have their hands reasonably dirty and understand some of it. What is your view in this where analytics should never have to worry about the data prep, data governance, or data lineage, but rather just focusing on the building the model and building the analytic result itself? Well, I think that everybody has to worry about the quality of the data. So from that perspective, even the analysts who are looking at the data should worry, you know, if the data that they are using for any kind of uh, recommendation that they are making to the business, whether it's valid or not. So from that perspective, they have to know that the data that they are using is useful. What I think is important is that data governance should be actually driven by the business owners and they should determine, just like how you determine requirements for a product, right? A software uh, application or whatever, the business should own the data governance to say to what extent it should be used and how it should be used and so forth. But they need to involve everybody in the governance decisions. And that includes people who are working on analytics as well. Now, do the analysts, do they have to get their hands dirty? I would say that to the extent that they, when you are looking at the data, you have to do some exploration to see how good the data is. So from that perspective, I think you are already going to get your hands dirty. But in terms of how exactly to put things in place so that the data gets governed appropriately, maybe they don't need to actually do that, but they should be involved. That is great answer. And in shaping some of the view, I so agree with that. Now, often people talk about having a minimum viable product or stay lean. And the importance of staying lean is just to make sure that we can reiterate, iterate very, very quickly. To some extent, it seems to be also perhaps contradict a little bit about the data governance where we want to make sure that the foundation is built up strong. So my question for you is data governance versus MVP. And if one or the business can only choose to focus one to focus on and needs to deliver a quick win to prove the value, which one should come first? Which one should come first? It all depends on where you are in your organization's maturity. So, for example, if you are a startup 
and you are bringing out your first ever product. And it's not a data analytics product because if you are doing data analytics product, you have to better think about the data quality from day one. Otherwise, the customers won't stay with you, right? So you will think about the data governance in parallel with the MVP. But for all the others who, for whom the data analytics is not part of their final solution that they are providing to their customer, they have to start small. They have to have their product be first thought out idea to prototype, proof of concept, to pilot before they can even say, I have something that works, right? From that perspective, somebody who's not in the analytics product business, they have to think about their MVP from the perspective of what is the solution they are offering to the customer. And when they do that, there are several considerations that might come to play. So for example, if they are in the business of delivering a product that is in the healthcare sector, there are a lot of different regulations come into play, right? And if that is the case, and also, for example, the GDPR type of uh, thing coming in with the many customers and so on, they have to worry about that aspect of data governance. It's not that they have to go whole hog and start a big data governance program, but they have to pick and choose, you know, what is the most important to my for my business right now at this stage. And therefore, when you are delivering an MVP, you have already thought through those and there is something in place that will make sure that you are delivering a quality product. So all depends on what business are you are in, what product you are delivering, and really depends on where you are. And as I said, data governance is an umbrella term. So you don't have to have everything from day one. You can start focus on the most important thing for you. For example, data privacy and data security, you can have a good governance in place for those, and then you can add slowly. But before you know it, the data could become really big, the one that you are basing all your decisions on. And so I wouldn't wait too long, but definitely for a startup that is not in the data analytics solution business, they probably need to look at what is the product that I'm going to offer the customer and do the MVP first. That is very true. Now, you were a very successful product manager and have developed a number of analytics solutions. Share about your philosophy in product development and management. Sure, sure. Yeah, product management is very dear to my heart because I've been doing that for a long time. To me, product owners are like CEOs. The buck stops here, right? So you have to completely own it and be responsible for it. And you have to have some core competencies in being a product owner. That's, uh, you know, being able to lead the user testing and the user experience, roadmap planning, running product sprints and tracking success and translating the business requirements, technical requirements and back and communicating value proposition. So these are all things that you must have as your competency. And then products need to be very useful. We need to understand the needs of the user. And sometimes the users don't know what they want. And when that is the case, you have to work closely with them, collaborate, and and then over multiple iterations, you can have the product you want. In terms of products, 
they have to have a measurable ROI. They must bring value, right? You don't want to keep building for the sake of releasing a new release of a product. You know, every feature must be looked at with the lens of, is this really bringing value? And the value might be all different. It could be ease of use. It could be whatever it might be, but you still have to ask that question, right? And I believe in doing proof of concepts and pilots with select set of customers. And that way you get to hear feedback and then you can refine your product ideas. And I believe uh, you should adopt agile methodologies, but it can't be just a blind, I will be agile or (laughs) whatever, because what works for one product may not work for another. For example, for some product, two-week sprints may be good for development cycles, but then there are other products that might need a little bit longer. So you can't simply be very blind about how you adopt these practices. And then, of course, QA must be automated as much as possible. It's extremely difficult to do QA if you are relying on manual QA because there is just so much QA. And you shouldn't think that the products have to be perfect in order to put in front of the user. As long as the users are aware what limitations are there, it's perfectly okay to say, here's the first release of the product and it's got these limitations. And I like the idea of having the MVP, having a beta product that's released to a few select customers in order to work out the kinks. But the general release, which reaches many, many customers, has to be of good quality. I refuse to release a product which has tons of problems. And then products are never finished and you have to keep refining them because the users will use it more and more and the user's needs change too. But uh, at some point, the returns are diminishing. So you have to stop. You are better off than to use the resources to develop something else. You know, you can disrupt your own self. So that that's uh, kind of my philosophy about product uh, development and management. I love it. Now, the data analytics solution often doesn't really have a front end or a GUI interface in a way like the software or like the website or like an enterprise system where users are clicking them up. That being said, it tend to be just really a lot of code. Would you say because of that differences, how would you apply the concept of the product development and product management for data analytics solution when they don't have this sort of uh, user interface like other software, other type of software then? Well, we don't have the so-called user interface like some of these other products, but we do have to have those for other reasons. Um, For example, when you are doing the data engineering, so in, in the case of retail solutions, for example, we dealt with retail data, you know, point of sale, inventory, promotion data, and this data, the retail data is pretty dirty, meaning, you know, there is no standard for how the data is collected and reported. So in developing an analytics solution, it was important to start with the treatment of the raw data. We received data from many retailers in various formats and various times of the day. 
We received master data from stores from the retailer and uh, master data on products, characteristics from CPG companies. And we had to provide a data pipeline so that then we can develop the analytic solutions. Now, this data pipeline, in order to know what data you are getting and is, are you getting the data on time and whether you are getting the data in the format in which you expected it, are you having too many outliers? All of these, they are better represented in a user interface for the incoming data analysts, the analysts who are looking at the raw data to see whether it's uh, you know good enough to pass through and then go through this complete process of cleansing and then harmonizing and so on. So in order to do that, you have to have some kind of charts to show these data engineers what's happening, right? So from that perspective, you do have to have some UIs and some visualization. You also, this was your business, the data analytics is your business. You needed to know that your what kind of volumes are these data are having, how fast it's growing so that you can then forecast how much storage you are going to need and what you're going to do in terms of your spend on storage solutions. And then, you know, your SLA. So for example, in retail solutions, we needed to get the data and turn it around within a few hours, like eight hours, for example. And if that is the case, you have all kinds of SLAs. So in order to even tell the customer you are getting what we promised, you have to collect a lot of different statistics. So you should be able to visualize them as well. So I think that it all depends on how you are constructing your business and how you are running it. And I always think that no matter what kind of product you have or what kind of company you have, if you have thought about analytics upfront as to how it's going to drive your business, it, it's much, much better. From that perspective, I think everybody has to worry about some of the capabilities. That is so true. Now, that almost brings us to the end of this interview. And uh, these are the, my go-to question for every single of my guests. The first one is, what is your most important first principle? My most important first principle? Well, I would say being open-minded. I think your mindset determines how successful you are going to be in anything you do. So you can be very close-minded, not let new ideas in, uh, always kind of defensive about what you can do versus what somebody else is telling you can work. So if you're open to ideas, suggestions, viewpoints from diverse set of people, you grow every day. And that is uh, very important. So I would say that to me is the most important first principle. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? Ah, this is a very interesting question because I, I can answer with so many books, Jason, but I will pick one book. I think the one book that I wish I would have been better off reading when I was young is the book on emotional intelligence by Daniel Goldman. Self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship management, these are all very important in everything we do. And my mind is an engineer's mind. It's a problem-solving mind. 
it would have been great to have read this book to know what I needed to do to strengthen my so-called soft skills earlier in my life. I learned it over time, but it would have been wonderful if I had had that knowledge really early on in my life. I think that is one book that uh, I would love to have read as well. EQ is just so important. Thank you so much, Shanta, for sharing your knowledge in terms of the data governance, product development, product management in a building analytics solution, especially for uh, from a founder perspective and who also have transit into uh, different stages of the career as an academic profession. Um, I really appreciate the value and the knowledge that you are sharing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed talking about it and uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.